Merry Christmas, church. I hope that I see you back next week. We're going to have an incredible day of just uh, worshiping together and singing the songs we love and candlelights and silent night and all of the above. And I would guess, just going on on a limb here, that most of your Christmases will involve family. Fair? How many of you are traveling somewhere else? Hopefully not next Sunday. How many of you have people who are traveling to see you? Christmas means relative. I started to say Christmas is relative, but that's uh, way, way too accurate in our world today. But Christmas definitely means relatives. Let me, uh, let me bug your house for a minute. You're going to have somebody at your Christmas table who maybe talks too much. They talk about things that are political or they're real sure their football team is better than your football team or, or they want to uh, look under the hood of your church, your faith. Your kids are sitting at the other end of the table going, awkward. Because that conversation is just awkward. Your dad shows up and he takes over both your lazy boy and your remote control. Your mom is in the kitchen absolutely sure that you cannot execute her recipe like she executed her recipe. As her mom before her was absolutely sure that she couldn't execute that recipe. As her grandmother and great-grandmother and all the way back to however back you can trace your family, every woman was sure that the, the next generation could never execute that recipe. Yeah? Or uh, maybe you're not so aware of the people who are at the table as you're aware of the people who aren't at the table. Maybe there is a, a rift in the family. Maybe there's a fractured relationship. Maybe uh, somebody is in military, they're serving overseas. Maybe they're in missions somewhere. Uh, maybe they're not there because they're not there because they're in heaven and, and that seat is empty and, and you're acutely aware of family who is there and you're acutely aware of family who's not there. Let me also go out on a limb and guess that many of you have family traditions. Uh, many of you uh, maybe some of you will come to the Christmas Eve service that we have at 11 p.m. We actually brought that one back from the, from the grave because we had families that told us that that was the one that they liked to come to. They were empty nesters. Their Christmas morning didn't start till the sun was high in the sky, not at 5.30 when the kids pad their way down the stairs. Uh, it's a tradition. Some of you will post pictures that I would rather not see of you in your pajamas because they all match. Some of you will see pictures of me in my pajamas that you wish you had not seen. Uh, we, we celebrate traditions, the things that we eat, the places we go, the botanical garden and the lights that are there. Some, some of you uh, go out of town and, and you're over the river and through the woods to grandma's house. And, and some of you do this thing or that thing. Christmas is a time of traditions. And I want to suggest to you that there is a possibility that we can introduce a tradition that is the best 
tradition of all. Humility. Now, I want to continue the story that we've been uh, talking about. Our series, Heaven Came Down, has all been from the Gospel of Luke, although we've visited lots of other passages. But I want to continue the story. We've talked about uh, John the Baptist and the vision that Zechariah had. And then we talked a little bit about Mary and the the vision that she had, the, the instructions that she got from the angel. And now it begins to get real with John the Baptist because uh, now this baby is actually born. And, and so I want to pick up that story in just a minute. Albert Einstein said, in the midst of crisis, opportunity. What if the Christmas table, what if the visit, the annual visit, what if that time is opportunity and not merely crisis, not merely chaos. Some of you are absolutely tied in knots at the thought that your family is going to come visit you or that you're going to go visit family. You're already planning your exit. I get it. But what if that became an opportunity for you to be who Christ is becoming in you, for you to be what God has meant for you to be, for you to be the mouthpiece, the words, the encouragement, the consolation for a person that maybe you didn't plan to. I want to suggest to you this morning that humility is probably a key. Family is not just one thing, it's everything. And we have been talking about a a family member in Jesus' family tree who was very significant, a significant cousin, although we're not sure what relationship he was, probably a cousin, maybe a cousin, maybe a second cousin, maybe a, a distant cousin, maybe like your cousins, not distant enough. But in this particular story that we pick up, we remember that an angel had visited Zechariah and that he had said, you're going to have a son, though that's improbable because you're very old, and you're going to name him John. Zechariah didn't really believe what he was saying, so Zechariah was rendered mute. He was not able to speak. And so now the pregnancy goes on, and, and when Elizabeth, his wife, was six months pregnant, when the, the baby was growing and active... Mary, we said last week, went and paid her a visit, and, and from the very beginning, this, this, this child in Elizabeth's womb seemed to recognize that he was in the presence of his cousin, and he did a little karate action in there, and, and Elizabeth said to Mary, my, my baby leapt in my womb because, because the, he, he's, he's essentially pointing to your baby. So then we have that unfold, and the the baby is born eight days into his life, as was the custom in the Jewish home. He was circumcised, and he was named. And it was only then that that his father, Zechariah, was able to talk, and he said, his name is going to be John, not Zechariah Jr. Are we grateful for that? Zechariah the Baptist just doesn't have the same ring to it. And so... uh, all the neighbors showed up, and 
And the father is, is rejoicing. He's finally able to speak. And, and if you look in your Bible in, in Luke chapter 1, you, you get this long poem that he wrote, just like Mary wrote a poem. We, we had a name for hers, the Magnificat. I don't, I don't know what the name is for, for Zechariah's poem, but, but he writes this long poem. And at the very end of the poem, after he, he worships God and he talks about how great God is, at the very end of the poem, he turns his attention to bless his son. And we find that blessing in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 76. I, my, the hairs on my arms stand up when I, when I think about a father saying this to his son. You child <laughs> will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord... You will prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I, I can only imagine that when later on John the Baptist began to demonstrate the humility that pointed not to himself but to, to his cousin to the Messiah, to the Christ. Maybe he checked back in with this prayer that somebody told him his father said. When his father said, this, this is going to be a guy who points to the guy. He, he's not the guy, but he's, he's pointing to the guy. He's not the leader, but he's pointing to the leader. He's not the king, but he's pointing to the king. He's not the main thing, but he's pointing to the main thing. What a humble statement by a father to be able to say, my, my son... And instead of saying, I, I hope that he becomes a, a quarterback, I hope that he becomes a politician, I hope that he becomes a, a great corporate leader, I hope that he's a doctor, I hope that he discovers something that's going to change the world. This father looked at his little baby and under the inspiration of God, he said, my child is going to point to the very most important thing that has ever, ever been. That's my son. What a statement of humility. And maybe that set the stage for what it was for John the Baptist to be a, a subordinate or a, or a messenger for his cousin his entire life. We can read a lot about his life. John the Baptist was an incredibly important guy. If I call him JTB, it's just to shorten things. JTB was an incredibly important guy. He had a miraculous birth. I mean, that alone should have given him bragging rights over a whole lot of other babies. He, he was born to parents who were probably way too old to attend his high school graduation. Probably didn't show up for uh, his early ministry because they were really old when he was born. After that, we don't know anything about them. So he lived a very simple life. The very last verse following the one I just read, the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. If you've ever been to Israel and gone to the place called Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948 by a Bedouin shepherd boy who was throwing rocks into a cave, 
He heard a clay jar break and he thought he was in big trouble because he'd broken the jar. But instead he unlocked a discovery that, that has revolutionized our study of Scripture. And in that little community there was a group of people called the Essenes. And pretty much all they did was baptize each other a bunch and copy Scripture. As they, were, they, they were recluse. They were way away from the rest of the world. And it's highly likely that John the Baptist was one of them. The place where Jesus was baptized is called Bethany by the Jordan. And, and it's not very far at all from this, this place called Qumran. And so the child was in the wilderness. He was living a simple life. He didn't go very near Jerusalem at all. Didn't go near any city. He was, he was in the desert, and people actually came to him because they heard of his message. They heard of his preaching. So, so JTB was out there kind of on his own, and throughout his life, we don't see it here, but there's some other scriptures that I, I, I want to point you to where we, we understand that this, this humility was such a part of his story that it allowed Jesus to step into center stage. John chapter 1, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes before me, and he ranks before me because he was before me. It's in parentheses because in the, in the Scripture, it's a, it's a sort of a, a parenthetical aside that this quotes John who, who, and in, in place it makes sure that we understand that Jesus was the one we were pointing to. And even though he was born six months before Jesus was, he said he was before me. He is forever. Luke chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, in that Qumran wilderness. And so he went all around the Jordan... And he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. So as an Essene, he had, he had baptized for purity. Now he was understanding that, that Jesus would come. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was walking towards him uh, in, the, in the desert one day, he said, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. He's the guy. I'm not the guy. He's the guy. For it's written... In the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he will come who prepares the way of the Lord. And so John knew, JTB understood from the very beginning that that's what his message was. And when Jesus came to be baptized by him, he understood that Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Jesus had never done anything. He, he had not sinned, and yet he came to be baptized as a model of what it means and I can only imagine that, you know, when, when we baptize somebody, we, we usually say you are dead in your former life. You are raised to walk in a new life. You are dead in your sin. You are alive. You are in the dark. You're in the light. We point to the contrast. As an Essene, John would have baptized for purity, uh, a washing away of, of impurities, a, a cleansing, 
But now he was beginning to understand that his message was one of repentance, that, that baptism doesn't wash anything away. It's an outer uh, action that demonstrates an inner reality that, that he was baptizing for repentance. And why would Jesus need that kind of baptism? To show us the way, to breathe our air, to model what it means to be a human, to feel pain, to feel the loss of relationship, to feel the uncertainty of the future. And so John said, hey, wait a minute. There's no way I should baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, this is the way it's supposed to be. And in humility, he accepted what Jesus told him to do, and he baptized him. And he says, I baptize with water for repentance, but this one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal. Think about where your face is if you're tying somebody's sandal. I can't imagine a, a more of a symbol of humility unless it's washing their feet, and Jesus did that too. And he says, I'm not worthy even to do that. And so when he came to be baptized, John the Baptist set aside his own agenda, set aside his own priorities, set aside everything that, that he thought, and he submitted to his role as the baptizer, John the baptizer, even of the Christ. Finally, in John chapter 3, the uh, scripture that I, I read just a minute ago, he said, I'm not the Christ. I, I, I'm not him. And he ended that statement with probably the very definition of humility. He must increase. I must decrease. So what does that look like? I mean, practically speaking, we're going to be at around our relatives. We're going to be sitting around and, and we're going to talk during halftime or maybe we'll walk out on the deck or maybe we'll uh, sit in a chair or maybe there'll be a, a private conversation that we have with, with one or more or maybe a topic will come up that really matters. And again, I want to suggest to you that, that perhaps it's, it's our humility, it's, it's the way we approach that conversation that might unlock it as a conversation, not that ends up trivial, not that ends up with, with the relatives going home and you saying, I wish I'd have said this, I wish I'd have said that. Maybe humility is what unlocks the depth, the passion, the reality of those conversations that actually points towards Jesus John chapter 12, Luke, uh, John chapter 12, Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And we're so worried that we're going to say the wrong thing in a conversation that we've kind of missed the point that it's our attitude as we approach that conversation and our insistence that we lift up Jesus that wins the day. It's, it's not that we said the right words or that we knew enough Bible verses. Practically speaking, it means that we let others be first. Rick Warren said it this way, it's, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's allowing others to be there. And at this point, I, I confess to you, I, there's been so many conversations 
I mean, our, our, our Thanksgiving table, back when our, our family, I've told you about our Thanksmas tradition, we had representation from Georgia, Georgia Tech, LSU, Southern Miss, that's me, LSU, Florida State. We could argue forever about who was best, except for Southern Miss. If we ever won a game, we went on probation. But it was this, this thing where, where you can do that for days and, and change from football to politics to religion to the weather to, to what's the best route to get from point A to point B. I've heard men argue about that for hours. Is it possible that those conversations can be redeemed? Let me suggest four things. Number one. Oh, let me do this quote first. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this life. The attachments of this life, our football, our politics, the things we think are so important to argue about, the attachments of this world. Last line up there. The call is to come and die to die to our agenda, to die to our arrogance, to die to our pride, to die to all the things that we thought were so important in the hopes that a conversation can take place that restores something, that redeems something, that energizes something, that encourages something so that the visit that the relatives have to you or you have to them is life-giving and not simply something we endure until it's time for everybody to go home. Number one, when pride, oh, verse in Proverbs, when pride comes disgrace, with humility comes wisdom. Here's how it plays out. Maybe we try to empathize with others and hear what they're really saying, discerning what they are really, really saying. When I was a youth pastor, it wasn't all that unusual for a student to come to me and say, do dogs go to heaven? And, and I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, theologically, yeah. Acts 6 says beware of the dogs, so I guess they're aware of them. Do dogs go to heaven? And before I ramp up a, a discussion on the eternity of the animal kingdom, it, it was helpful for me to say, what are they really saying? And nine times out of ten, when that question was posed to me, they're not asking about dogs. They're asking, does eternity exist? Behind the surface question is a real question that was deeper, but, but maybe they were just too timid to ask. Maybe they, they figured they were embarrassed because they didn't know. And so many times in a conversation that you or I might have with a relative over this holiday season... There's some kind of trivial throwaway that's out there. And if we look closely, there's something deeper underneath. There's some question, some need, some fear that's, that's actually being expressed, but they, they just didn't know the words to say it. Too often... Our family gatherings turn up into one-upping. One-upping. Well, this is the way I came here. Well, it's better if you take Route 29. 
Well, Florida State should have been in the Well, here's what I think. And there's no end to that, and it's just, it's circular. It's, is it possible that when something like that is thrown out there, there's something much, much deeper that's sort of behind the scenes, under the surface? It takes humility to remain teachable. It takes humility to learn something else. It takes humility for us to, to realize that I don't know what I don't know. And, and maybe a, an older relative, maybe a younger relative, maybe a teenager, maybe a child has something to teach me that I can learn. When we were in Dallas the last time, we uh, went to the Dallas Zoo and there's a carousel that Reed loves to ride and he wanted to ride the cheetah. Who doesn't want to ride a cheetah? Me. <laughs> and uh, when we got ready to, to ride it, the, the lady said, the seatbelt is, is broken on this one. You'll have to ride something else. And Reed said, well, Papa, why don't you just hold me? And I'm, I'm learning something. Instead of, instead of the seatbelt being the issue, what he really wanted was me to be there with him. And, and I held him on the cheetah as we went up and down and up and down and round and round. And it was one of the most profound things that a four-year-old could ever say. Because what he wanted was not about a seatbelt. It was about me being there with him. Sometimes we remain teachable. We can learn from the old people. We can learn from the young people. Humility is what unlocks that. It takes humility to stay in fellowship with different people, difficult people. I have four words that have, uh, have sort of ruled the day when I have a difficult relationship, especially in my family. I have four words that I kind of speak over that that seem to solve everything. Here they are. You are dead to me. That's five words. <laughs> Seems to solve the problem don't think about them anymore. They don't think about me anymore. Difficult relationship solved. <laughs> That's not the way. It takes humility to, to stay in a relationship and try to, to work that out. I, 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 the, 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 even John the Baptist had, had some questions about what Jesus was doing, and near the end of his life, JTB sent word from prison to ask Jesus, are you the one that we've been looking for? I've proclaimed you all my life, but you're doing stuff that doesn't feel like you're about to be the Messiah. You're about to be the king. You're about to, to be the exalted one. You're doing stuff that just doesn't line up. Are you the one or aren't you? Those are difficult questions, and it, it takes a little bit of humility for us to stay in those kinds of scenes instead of just saying, you are dead to me. Finally, it may call for a little vulnerability on our own. I don't know why we get so prideful around relatives, <laughs> even friends, our, our girl group, our guy group, our, why do we get so prideful around them that we don't want to admit that we're hurting? We don't want to admit we don't know how to do something. We don't want to admit that, that there's a hole in us that we, we just can't fill. Why is it that we have so much trouble being vulnerable around our family when they can help us? 
one of the psychologists that I used to read was Mary Pfeiffer, and she was writing on teenage girls, and he said that she said that teenage girls push us as parents away at the time they need us the most. And we, at our family gatherings, we push our relatives away at the time we need them the most. We're, we're hurting, but we don't want to tell anybody else that we're hurting because they might think we're weak. It, we, we're hurting, we're, we're, we're confused, we, we don't know what to do with the, what, the news that I just heard from the doctor or from the corporate uh, boss and the word restructuring was used, and that's terrifying. We don't know what to do with that. And we kind of know that there's some wisdom around the table, or at least there's some encouragement, there's some love, there's some acceptance. But it takes humility for us to admit that perhaps we don't know what we don't know. What if humility ruled the day at our tables? What if we lift Jesus up? And allow him to draw men to himself. What if, what if we do a little bit of what John the Baptist did and said, I, I, I'm not the way, but he is the way. And I don't have to be the smartest or the rightest. I, I'd rather be righteous than right. And righteousness involves humility. And, and, and I have some learning. Let me just listen for a little bit. Let me not plan my answer before I even hear the end of the question because I want to solve it for you or fix it for you. Maybe, maybe what needs to happen is for it to be worked out sort of in real time, in conversation, in safe, loving, encouraging environments. And I bet if humility is sort of at the starting point, I bet if you go back and study John the Baptist like we have and go, wow, over and over and over again. He said, it's not about me, it's about somebody else. And if we can do a Christmas where it's not about me, it's about somebody else, it'll change the way things happen around your house. And it will certainly give you opportunities, like John the Baptist, to point not to yourself, but to the one who died the one who rose, the one who saved, the one who was born of a baby, crucified as a man, resurrected on the third day, promised to return. That's the one we get to point to when it's not about us. Would you pray with me? Father, it's very possible that this message of humility, because it's so counter to what the world would have us to do or say, It's very possible that it's so foreign to some people that they are attracted to the idea that this could be a way of life. And to be attracted to the message of humility is to be attracted to the one whose humility allowed him to be one of us. As Paul said in Philippians, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard that Godness a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of man, and being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Father, we, we worship the one who was humble enough to die for us. 
And it's very, very possible that someone in this room, someone watching online, has not grasped that truth or not allowed that truth to invade their lives. I pray that this would be the day that they say, I I don't understand everything, but God, I want to walk with you. I want to serve you. I I want Jesus to forgive my sins and, and, and teach me. If that's your cry today, I will hang around in this room afterwards. I'll be at the front. Come see me. There'll be other pastors who are in the lobby. Go see them. Go to the connections corner and, and get somebody to point you to somebody. Don't leave today with that spiritual question hanging out. God, we love you and we look forward to this next week or two. And we pray that whatever conversations we have, that in our spirit, our insistence will be that we point not to ourselves, but to you. And that is my prayer in Jesus' name.